0: and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events.
1: Hi, welcome and thanks to everyone joining us today from around the world. I'm Flynn Murray. I'm the publishing director of Descent Magazine, which is also the longest-running democratic socialist magazine in the United States. I'm also a writer and labor activist, and I'll be moderating today's discussion. Before I get around to introducing Joe Allen, I want to thank the organizer and sponsor of this teach-in, Haymarket Books, in partnership with Dissent Magazine. So now it's my great pleasure to introduce Joe Allen. Joe is the author of the recently re-released book, The Package King, a rank-and-file history of UPS, as well as Vietnam, the last war the U.S. lost, and People Wasn't Made to Burn, a true history of housing, race, and murder in Chicago. Joe worked at UPS for nearly a decade and has written numerous articles on UPS and the the logistics industry, among many other topics. And before we get into our discussion tonight, Joe and I wanted to start by expressing our solidarity with the people protesting the murder of George Floyd and all the lives that have been lost at the hands of the police in states all across the country and in countries all around the world. People are risking their lives during a pandemic and at the hands of the police to denounce racism, to demand justice and to force the state to hold killer cops accountable for their actions. We are in solidarity with you and we will be joining you in the streets. With that, I'm gonna jump right into the questions for Joe. So Joe, I wanted to start out today by having you tell uh, our viewers a little bit about what led you to write a book specifically about UPS.
2: Well, thanks Flynn. Uh, It's great to be here and thanks to everybody who's making some time today to to watch the program. Um, I, I wrote a book about UPS that really came out of two sources. One, i worked there and so I thought that, you know, it's not like there haven't been any books written about UPS, but I thought there was a fairly it was fairly thin the number. Uh, if you go to any library and you look up books, particularly UPS, it's 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 pretty rare to find more than three or four. Um, there have been sort of autobiographical firsthand accounts that are sort of, in most cases self-published by people who work there. Uh, but I thought that you know, given the fact that I was. Um, I had worked there a long, uh, you know, a fair amount of years, nearly a decade. And that I had also been, uh, you know, a longstanding socialist uh, with an eye towards trying to understand the changing economy from the 1980s to the present and both the successes and the failures and the struggles of our trade union movement and rank and file workers. I wanted to write something that kind of would both be you know a rank-and-file socialist perspective on a company like UPS, but also to try to integrate it with both the history of UPS as a company. After all, it's uh, over 100 years old right now, and if you and is a ubiquitous presence in American life, and if you say compare the number of books and studies of uh, ups would say something like the ford motor company there are whole shelves and sections and hundreds if not thousands of articles written about ford uh, as one example Uh, and so it's minuscule the amount of them was written about ups compared to that Uh, most people don't even know the founder of ups jim casey while they can easily know that you know You know, Ford Company was founded by Henry Ford and knows something of of his controversial life. And I also wanted to integrate that with uh, a history of the Teamsters Union, both of that as the institutional relationship between um, the company and the union, which is well over 80 years old now, um, and the conflicts between rank and file workers the union leaderships of different eras and its evolving uh, nature as the most important logistics company uh, still uh, in the world. So it's really from those two uh, Wellsprings that uh, I decided that a book uh, needed to be written. And I hope that you know it's written in a way that is both accessible for both rank and file activists at UPS and in the Teamsters for workers in the broader logistics industry, uh, and that, uh, but at the same time, doesn't at all kind of dumb down uh, what is also a very complicated history that requires serious study to learn from and to take some of that into the non-union wing of the uh, logistics industry, specifically something like Amazon or uh, Federal Express, so, or FedEx, as it's better known now. Uh, and I hope um, it'll be the judge of other people to decide whether it succeeds in that or not.
1: <laughs> well, thanks for that intro. So um, the next thing I wanted to talk a bit about is how the rise of UPS in many ways mirrors the broader history of the development of the logistics industry in the twentieth century. Um, primarily, the ways the company was able to adapt to market pressures to become the shipping giant that it is today. Um, so, what what is the understanding? of this history of UPS and of the rank and file unionism within uh, UPS help your readers grasp about the broader logistics industry?
2: Well, UPS has a has a kind of funny history because if you uh, you know, start at its origin, its its beginning point, uh, it's founded in 1907 uh, by Jim Casey and his brothers and a few friends as the American messenger service. And it's, it's a bicycle delivery company. Now, you go, you know, flash forward 113 years, and now it employs nearly half a million people worldwide, uh, over 400,000 in the United States. It's the largest component of uh, members of the Teamsters Union. Uh, It flies to 220 countries every every day. Uh, And everybody in the world knows UPS. Uh, uh, So how does, you know, how do you start out in one place? and you you go to another well. I think it does tell you a, a lot of things. Uh, one is that it begins as this kind of boutique delivery service for you know high end you know department stores, uh, starting in Seattle, working its way down the West Coast, making a leap to to uh, to New York in the nineteen thirties. Um, after World War II. Uh, With the development, with suburbanization and the development of malls and widespread, uh, you know, car ownership, you didn't need somebody from a department store to deliver your goods to you, you could just take them home in your own car. Uh, And so UPS had to become much more of a freight company and much more of a business to business operation. and, but it, it, it did what it did very well in development, which is what was called parcel post, which is, you know, sounds kind of like an arcane term now. But what it really means is small packages of lightweight, between 10 and 20 pounds at the most. And it really built a national uh, sorting and distribution system and its trucks around delivering small packages. Uh, its major competitor was the post office. Uh, so by 1968, it had kind of snuck up on the other big freight companies and the post office. So the post office was still uh, delivering a billion packages a year, but UPS was delivering half a billion packages a year. So most people were, were unaware of that, that literally in the course of 25 years, it sort of became the other post office. Um, it was referred to by Forbes magazine as the quiet giant because it didn't do any advertising. Uh, it kept a very low profile, uh, and you know, and so it kind of snuck up on its competition. Hmm. It goes to another major change in the 1970s and the 1980s, after it becomes a nationwide company, um, and it begins to compete with much more of what would have been called the traditional freight business during the 1970s and the 1980s, and then makes a big uh, effort to compete with FedEx in overnight delivery, which means creating its own uh, vast air network, uh, which is based in Louisville, Kentucky at what it calls Worldport. And so UPS sort of begins as a boutique sort of delivery service, survives the post-war suburbanization and mauling of America by becoming a big freight company, and then it gets into overnight delivery of packages for businesses. And during the course of the 1990s and the 2000s, it sort of in a funny way returns to being uh, a delivery service for, for department stores uh, getting into home and residential delivery uh, because of the explosion of, of online internet, internet shopping. So it morphs in many different ways during this 107 year history. But it sort of, in a funny way, circles around to doing the business that it started to do, but obviously in a vastly, a vastly different uh, circumstances.
1: Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the things I find really interesting about your book is that there aren't any shortages of materials um, written from the perspective of the company or the founder um, talking about the history of UPS. Um, But your view is pretty unique. Uh, You wanted to frame this history from the perspective of a rank-and-file activist and from the perspective of, you know, you yourself having worked there uh, for for almost a decade. Um, So... I want you to talk a little bit about why you felt that highlighting it from this perspective was so important and what it is particularly that you're hoping to pass on from that perspective to those that are currently trying to organize their workplaces and their unions.
2: Well, I, 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 I want to first thank the people who came for me who uh, you know wrote similar things, but maybe didn't get the same distribution with their books. So, One pamphlet that I read before I worked at UPS was called How to Beat the Big Brown Machine, and it was written by Mary Deaton, and it was distributed by a rank-and-file, a very short-lived rank-and-file group called Upsurge, which was founded in the mid-1970s and petered out by the early 1980s. But it was a very unique rank-and-file movement uh, for its time. Uh, led in most cases by women. It, hooked up, it was a hookup between newer radicals coming out of the 60s and 70s and older radicals like Vince Meredith, who was based in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, uh, How to Beat the Brick Brown Machine takes a similar viewpoint that, that I did, uh, but from the point of view of writing about a company that was very much shaped by the 1970s and the sensibilities of the business and the unions of the 1970s, and particularly a Teamsters union, which at that time was extraordinarily undemocratic, dominated by the mafia, uh, you know, infamous for the mafia pillaging the pension funds and running local unions and so forth. The most way that people understand the history of the Teamsters, unfortunately, is through the life and death of Jimmy Hoffa. You're not know, really much about uh, the history of the Teamsters from the Irishman, maybe the only thing the Irishman was good for was was, uh, really kind of de-glamorizing Jimmy Hoffa Sr. Dan Labotz wrote a book about the history of Teamsters for a Democratic Union uh, called Rank and File Revolt, uh, which UPS plays as a a big part of that story. Uh, Dan's book was written uh, after the institution of rank and file elections in the uh, early 1990s. Uh, it was an attempt to kind of summarize the history of the reform movement best represented by Teamsters for a Democratic Union uh, up until that point of time and to provide some some way forward. Uh, so I really see the package king as kind of building upon those previous works, summarizing them, and then sort of dealing with a company that is now a global giant. I mean, that's that's the big difference between the 1970s and now, uh, and the difference between the 1990s when Dan wrote his book and now is, of course, you know the explosion of of, of internet and online shopping in our lives and how intimately tied up UPS is with that. Um, what I'd like people to take away from the Package King is a couple of things. Uh, one is is to recognize that. You know, the capitalist system is one that's consistently based on the exploitation of its workers. And it will never find, never cease finding ways to do that, new and terrible ways to do that. Uh, in many ways, Amazon is sort of, you know, the latest version of, of that. But, it, it, you know, UPS had this, you know, one, it had this great ally of the, the Teamsters leadership, except for, for a short period under Ron Kerry. Who led the most important strike against UPS in its history? But by and large, it had a very compliant leadership. It had this kind of, you know, kind of very kind of cult like internal culture. And yet, despite having those two things to fight against, rank and file workers uh, were able to organize and change their union and to take on this real, this incredible behemoth of a company. So I think one of the things that workers at Amazon, at FedEx, many of these giant trucking companies like XPO, is that actually they can learn from the experience of rank and file workers. I think pretty directly uh, in in organizing and challenging uh, their employers, who at different points in time, you know, may seem all powerful and be politically connected. but the lesson from UPS is you can organize and defeat them.
1: Yeah. And that's a really important uh, lesson. And like you said, if people want to learn more about one of the most important strikes uh, in the history of this country, um, not just the history of UPS, uh, Joe's book goes into it. And uh, Joe and I also go into it in the uh, interview that we published with Dissent Magazine a few weeks back. Um, so people can take a look at that as well. Um One thing I wanted to loop into this conversation a little bit is the current protests that have been going on. Um, So during some of the recent protests against the murder of George Floyd, uh, there have been cases of bus drivers refusing to transport protesters uh, that have been arrested at demonstrations where the cops are trying to put them on buses and, you know, use the buses as basically their paddy wagons. Um, So these drivers are refusing to do that. Um, it's a, in my perspective, a beautiful act of solidarity. And it reminded me of something that I think the Teamsters are really known for, which is supporting other workers by not crossing picket lines. Mm -hmm. Um, even today, um, you know, decades away from, you know, I'd say the apex of their organizing capacity. Uh, UPS drivers are still notified if a business on their route is on strike. And mm-hmm. so they don't cross those those picket lines, uh, which I think is pretty amazing. Um, so I was hoping that you could say a little bit about the legacy of solidarity tactics like that, which is called a hot good strike and how they were developed, how the Teamsters developed them.
2: Well, I think the the Teamsters obviously as a union, um, has a very long history now. Um, it was founded in 1905, largely as a union of craft workers. That is the sort of skilled men who, you know, actually drove teams of horses. That's that's where the ter- term originally um, comes from. And uh, following World War One, the, the freight industry or the, the cartage industry, I know that kind of sounds very 19th century, local (laughs) freight delivery um, becomes motorized very rapidly during the course of uh, the 1920s. Uh, You know, trucks were first used uh, by the U.S. Army, and then they became ubiquitous for transporting freight. And of course, after World War II, there was a massive explosion of the freight industry, that uh, UPS also benefited uh, because of the creation of the interstate highway network under 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 how Eisenhower, uh, which really kind of transformed many things about American life, and uh, American society. Uh, in the context of that, that's where the Teamsters grew. It changed as a union during the course of the 1930s because, like some craft unions, I mean, craft most of the time means having a skill trade. You know, plumbers, electricians, carpenters. Um, that allowed in, quote, unskilled workers. Now, I don't know any workers who are unskilled, but that's that's the phrases that people use to describe this stuff. So in the, in the mid-1930s, the most important strike in the history of the Teamsters at that time is where the revolutionary socialists of, of, of Minneapolis led a citywide trucker strike that really organized the entire industry in that city. And it became something of a model for people who may have been virulently anti-communist and opposed to the leaders of the Minneapolis Teamsters, but who mirrored their tactics uh, all across uh, the country. Many of these same tactics, particularly boycotting uh, struck goods, uh, were criminalized with heavy penalties after World War II by the Taft-Hartley Act, which was the biggest legal attack on uh, the rights of not only the legal rights of workers, but the tactics of the labor movement um, that built it during the course of, of the 1930s. But the Teamsters were an immensely powerful union, uh, despite being incredibly corrupt, dominated by the mafia. Uh, the Teamsters, by the early 1970s, had 2.2 million members, and most freight companies uh, that they and they dominated the freight industry. And the freight companies that they organized were just really minuscule uh, compared to the size of the union. So the union could literally strike a company, refuse to carry goods, honor picket lines. And the question always became in strikes is whether the Teamsters were on the picket line or not. And that would have a huge impact on whether strikes were, were won or not, um, which is also important to understand why in terms of federal law, The transport unions, uh, you know, the Teamsters, for example, at one time, the airlines, uh, the dock workers, have been also subject to some of the most repressive legal legislation to kind of mute or or cut down on their actual economic power. But also those unions have been subject to a lot of political witch hunts, irrespective of who their political leadership should be, uh, were. So, you know, whether Jimmy Hoffa was corrupt and tied up with the mafia, or Harry Bridges, who represented the West Coast, you know, Dockers Union, who was sympathetic to the Communist Party. They all suffered decades of persecution, not because of their, not because of first and foremost about who they were, but because of the power of their unions. Um, One of the things, particularly when you you think about the current events, you know, in in the United States, this kind of national uprising against the uh, racial terrorism, of the uh, police departments of this country is that there's a strong echo with many of the urban rebellions of the 1960s and the 1970s. And no company is uh, an island hermetically sealed from these events and how it impacts their workers. And back in the 60s and 70s, this had a pretty dramatic impact on UPS because as, as it began to morph into one of the largest trucking companies in the country, it had to hire tens of thousands of workers. So, you know, it went from being a company that was almost stereotypically a workforce and a management structure of being white, middle-aged, Irish-American men, uh, to being one which had an incredibly diverse workforce because of this expanding business during the 1970s. So, you know, you see the fruits of that being uh, uh, drivers today in many of the big urban areas are heavily black and Latino. Uh, women drivers, particularly in the Teamsters, first became union members at UPS. Vietnam veterans who came back radicalized by the war brought that type of politics or spirit or sensibilities into uh, into both UPS and the labor movement at that time. And I think that the Black Lives Matter Uh, movement uh, of the earlier part of the decade, and the rebellions now will have a similar impact, particularly on Black workers in this sprawling logistics industry, which is both union uh, and non-union. And I I hope it leads to further struggles in in the non-union area.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm glad you touched on that because my next question was going to be somewhat more about the pandemic, but I think it can absolutely include uh, the demonstrations that we're seeing today. Um, And basically it's that, you know, UPS, we've seen workers at UPS fight for decades over, like you just mentioned in the 70s, like speed ups, managerial harassment. Pensions—it's one of the only private uh, unionized companies to still have a pension system, work safety, and other issues. Um, and my question was was actually about uh, how the pandemic or these external factors, such as the demonstrations, helped to shape new organizing efforts at UPS. I think it's it's only been a few days um, of protest, but the pandemic's been going on for a few uh, months now. So maybe you could say a little bit about um, how you see that shaping potential organizing efforts at UPS, potentially around uh, hazard pay or personal protective equipment, um, and how that fits with what we're seeing at some of the other logistics companies, such as Amazon.
2: Well, I think we should start by saying that uh, the pandemic has been both a PR boon and uh, a financial windfall for all of the logistics giants uh, as many people have been largely confined to their homes or their neighborhoods, you know the logistics companies have been delivering food and vital and vital medicines uh, to them and for people who you know and I think this is a trend that, you know, know, has been going on for a long time, and the pandemic has carried it forward. Um, It's also, I think, important to say um, that it's also what the pandemic has done, and this is, you know, began a while ago, too, is to kind of lift back the veil of what the actual working conditions are like at all of these, um, the major logistical giants, UPS, Amazon has gotten a lot of uh, 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 exposure on these issues, particularly because of the activism of its workers. And it's not a pretty picture. Um, UPS always had this very kind of faux military culture, even, you know, very pro-company chroniclers of the UPS, uh, such as uh, uh, Greg Neiman, a former UPS manager who uh, wrote a book about UPS, you know, would would uh, glow. You know, glowingly talk about how UPS builds. Uh, you know, builds workers better than machines. Now, that's a very strange comment because machines and human beings are not the same thing. But it goes back to this kind of, you know, production and exploitation, whatever the cost may be. So, UPS has always been a very dangerous place uh, to work in. This is not only inside the hubs where workers have to unload thousands of packages and get all sorts of uh, bodily uh, uh, injuries from that, but even the package car drivers who get injured out on on the street and are subject to uh, uh, all sorts of terrible working conditions. Last the previous summer last year, UPS was fined and cited by OSHA for many heat related illnesses. Uh, for drivers all across the country. And this summer we're looking at, you know, another hot summer combined with a pandemic. So there's there's a whole, you know, potential for an even greater disaster around them for UPS drivers.
1: Right, and for folks that don't know, UPS cars don't have AC still, so.
2: Yeah.
1: Right, they, depend- don't have
2: air, they don't have air conditioning. Yeah, And you know, in the cabs of UPS uh, trucks, where drivers spend a lot of time sorting packages, unloading packages, Temperatures is going to reach 110, 120 degrees. Um, you know, I worked in, you know, two hubs. Uh, I also was a, a full-time driver for a short period of time, but I, most of my experience was either working part-time or a combination full-time job, where part of that was in the hub. And working conditions during the summertime are just absolutely, uh, absolutely abysmal. Um, you know, you compare, you know, UPS hubs, which in most cases are probably the size of Walmart department stores, they can air condition those. The Walmart department stores, but they can't air condition the UPS hubs. I mean, it's it's just it's just those are just the uh, you know the contradictions of working in a place like UPS and how dangerous it is. Uh, the other, of course, is that you know the uh, at, at Amazon, which is both a, a delivery company and a retail operation, that we've learned you know all of the dangerous conditions. Um, from the speed of work to, you know, deaths on the job, to heat-related injuries, combined with, and this is true at UPS, that the pandemic makes it just impossible for people to, you know, work six feet apart. Uh, the possibility of the spread of disease is, is, is always there. Um, the Teamsters responded to the pandemic by first being able to win uh, Ten days. This is a temporary measure. Ten days uh, paid leave for those who are sick or have to take care of people who are sick with COVID. Uh, but you know, you know, in most places, most drivers, most 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 UPS hubs, the wearing of masks, social distancing is is haphazard at best. For my calling, people around the country uh, where it's a necessity to have, be able to wash your hands and face on a regular basis. Uh, there are just far too many UPS facilities uh, where there, you know, where there is no hot water available, where, where soap and towels, paper towels are are scattered haphazard at best. Uh, what we've seen across the country, I think, is a very welcome kind of rebellion from whether you're in meat packing, you're in sanitation, or you're an apple worker. That workers in a variety of industries, in many cases, they're non-union have gone on strike, carried out job actions of one sort or another, particularly over this, this issue of, of the pandemic and the need to have personal protective equipment uh, to protect themselves, their families, and their and their co-workers. And so I think in some ways the kind of struggles that we saw before the pandemic, particularly around uh, educational struggles, has kind of found its way into a broader array of industries around health and safety, and hopefully that will uh, that will continue. But I think with the, the question, particularly of a company like Amazon or FedEx or the, the array of kind of smaller logistics operations is that there's a real necessity to actually organize these places. And unfortunately you do not see that type of commitment from either the Teamsters or any of the other major unions in this country um, at this time.
1: Right. Well, that, that actually leads really well into the last question I have for you, which is a little bit of a bigger question, um, which is that, um, you know, we've, we've touched or like gone around the question of unifying organizing taking place, you know, at these different companies. Um, but your book goes into that in some detail and the conclusion, you basically argue that, uh, we need, a, a future in North America, where all logistics workers are represented by one union, uh, so sectoral bargaining uh, and having a unified logistics sector should be what uh, current organizing efforts are, are geared towards achieving. Um, so I, I'm hoping you can draw that out a little bit more, because obviously, you um, Like you just mentioned, there are tons of opportunities to be organizing these workers that are going out on strike around paid protective gear, Um, not to mention the fact that Amazon's business is booming during the pandemic we also have the post office which we should talk about i'd say as part of the logistics logistics umbrella which is Absolutely. slated to run out of money in a few months um, you know and basically fedex and ups are are experiencing what i would call second peak seasons in the middle of the summer you know normally mm-hmm. they they just have that one all out in the winter um, so you know there's this whole new Opportunity for workers to start organizing together. So, what do you think the Teamsters and other rank and file activists should be doing to go for that larger sectoral wide bargaining goal?
2: Well, I think there's a there's a couple of things we should note uh, from the beginning, which is that you know, in sharp contrast to say the heroic struggles uh, 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 in terms of the industry structures. In, in sharp contrast to the historic, heroic struggles of, say, the CIO in the 1930s and the, the 30s in the auto industry, or on the waterfront, or many other industries, you know, you could organize at two or three key and uh, two or three key cities. Like if you were in the auto industry at General Motors in Flint, or at, with the River Rouge plant of Henry Ford in, in Detroit, um, and you could sh- you could shut down the company. Uh, when the West Coast Dockers, under leadership of Harry Bridgers, you know they were able to shut down all of San Francisco and organize uh, from there. The Minneapolis Trotskyists, because the trucking companies were much smaller compared to the union, once they organized Minneapolis, they had a hand o- a- an upper hand uh, over the trucking companies that uh, uh, could be modeled on by the by the rest of the Teamsters Union. I think today when you deal with the big logistics giants, you can't really talk about, while they have central locations, you know, Worldport is the center of UPS's global air operations. Uh, The Chicago area consolidated hub, south of here in uh, Chicago, southwest of Chicago, where I am, uh, is the largest ground package facility uh, in the world, and those are undoubtedly important places to be at. But I think in order to organize them, It has to be done on a national level. There isn't going to be some slow process by one or two uh, workplaces that you solely accumulate over time. In some sense, what the Teamsters did from the 30s through the 1970s, when the company grew, the union grew, one county, one state, one region at a time. I don't think that's possible now. I think that Amazon, um, especially FedEx and other non-union giants have the upper hand and it only can be confronted on a national basis. I think in order for a national struggle to take place, it would be great if there's a change in regime in the Teamsters Union that allows it to gear up um, to fight and organize Amazon on a national level. I'm skeptical of that only because the history, the most recent history of the Teamsters uh, at UPS, which is the post carry years, which is now a long time now, well over, you know, uh, twenty years, uh, is one largely of concessions to the company. You don't; it doesn't provide a living example of why you should risk your job to join a union. So I think there needs to be some big political changes uh, uh, to do that. I think something on a larger scale. And so I think the pandemic, in a funny way, while it has kept most of us Uh, inside, and very focused on our immediate uh, health and and livelihood, it has kind of broadened the understanding, I think, among people who work at Uber, who work at Amazon, who work at Instacart, and at UPS and other places, they have a commonality of interest. If they work at the post office, they have a commonality of interest uh, uh, that allows them uh, joint activity. Oh, that won't happen, I think. Just you know, the circumstances may be provided by something like the pandemic or or some other political uh, opportunity in the future. But you also have to have. Uh, and I think we learned this from the past, both well, from the '30s and the '70s, is that you have to have self-conscious uh, trade union organizers, and in most cases socialists, who actually you know either relate to these workplaces, relate to the activists who they themselves go into them with the eye of trying to build a a campaign to organize these places. And I think, you know, the massive growth of the democratic socialists of America over the last few years, which now has nearly 60,000 members, you know, uh, if we can merge some of those members with the longstanding activists who are currently in many of these logistics companies, I think we have the potential to begin the type of nationwide organizing that has eluded us for a long time until now.
1: Well, I think that offers a great uh, jumping off point for people thinking about organizing in these sectors. Also, um, you know, people should know that there are, you know, there are rank and file reform caucuses right now that they could start to do work in like Teamsters for a Democratic Union. Um, I think that would be a great place to start. But I mean, certainly we would love to see something of that nature take place here in the U.S. Um, So we want to go ahead and open it up at this point. Uh, We really want to hear from the audience. So before I start to take questions, I just have one quick announcement. Um, I wanted to remind everybody about tomorrow's event on the YouTube channel, Uh, Indigenous resistance against oil pipelines during a pandemic, a conversation between Nick Estes and Kim Talbert. So that is June 3rd. Uh, and with that, please uh, start passing us your questions. We're happy to answer anything. can be about UPS, can be about logistics, can be about rank and file organizing. We'll hear it all. So the first question I have is from Paul. Paul asks, has UPS tried to break the union and why have they failed?
2: Well, what UPS is, well, first of all, UPS has had a very cooperative relationship with the Teamsters throughout most of its history. And it has pretty much, for most of its history, gotten what it wants from the Teamsters. Uh, the most important, the two most important things from the 1960s and 70s onward was it got the acquiescence of the union. To create to really break up and eliminate uh, full time uh, inside uh, uh, sorting jobs and unloading jobs uh, inside the the massive UPS hubs into into part time jobs. Um, You want to you know that process began in the 1960s, and in the 1980s it just it just really took over uh, the whole company. Uh, So you know so by the early 1990s, you know two thirds of its workforce was part time. And along with part-time work, uh, became low wages, low starting wages. So for nearly thirty years, uh, the starting wage at UPS for part-timers was eight or eight fifty an hour. When Ron Carey was elected in the first rank-and-file uh, uh, Teamster election uh, uh, in nineteen ninety and took office in nineteen ninety-one, along with a slate that was, you know, heavily. Uh, populated by people who were in the Team for Democratic Union, there was an attempt to shift the union and it took some time to be in a fighting position to take on many of these issues. Uh, UPS was not happy about this. Uh, and so it tried to provoke a series of battles with the Kerry administration where they hoped that the old guard, as you know, we refer to the kind of old mobbed-up leadership, will either take over again, or it would simply be able to beat uh, Kerry and the reformers uh, into line. Uh, they heavily miscalculated. And so in 1997, you saw the first and only national UPS strike, which was a hand down, hands-down victory for the Teamsters and many of the rank-and-file reformers who had been campaigning for many decades uh, to precisely take on these working conditions at UPS, so the union won ten—you know—the creation of ten thousand new full-time jobs. It preserved the pension fund and won an expansion of huge rights, and uh, it was a hands-down victory for the union. And enraged uh, UPS, uh, so has the company tried to break the union? It hasn't tried to break it. What it's always looked for was a having a compliant relationship with trade union officers. So when James Hoffa, the current and outgoing president, he's announced he isn't gonna run for re-election, uh, came into office uh, in, the 19, in the late 1990s, uh, uh, one of the uh, major transport newspapers, Transport Topics ran an editorial about UPS and Hoffa that was called In Love with Hoffa. So they got back the compliant leadership uh, that, they, that they so desired. And during the last contract negotiations, once again, the Hoffa administration agreed to creating another, uh, uh, you know, tier of underpaid uh, workers that undermine the working conditions of uh, of full time employees. So, um, as long as UPS has had a compliant leadership, it, it keeps that going. When under the carry years. Um, it tried, to, it tried to defeat him on the picket line and failed, and then used their political influence to get him purged from the union. That's another story.
1: <laughs> okay, great. So our next question is from Michael. Uh, Michael asks, what are the forces you feel are at play in preventing the leadership of the Teamsters and other unions from more successful activist organizing in the logistic industries?
2: Well, I mean, I think they're complacent. I mean, I, I mean, the, the, the problem with, uh, with you know, the, the, what they call themselves internationals, right, the, um, the, most of the American unions, and that means they have some members in Canada uh, and, and Puerto Rico and some of the other American possessions or territories, more rightly called colonies. Uh, but most of the national union leaderships themselves are far removed and have been for decades from the lives of the workers that they represent. I mean, the American, uh, you know, trade union movement. Pick a just pick a major union. Um, they're extraordinarily well paid. They're not paid like CEOs, but they they make a hell of a lot more money than their own workers make. They live a lifestyle very, you know, they don't punch the clock. They don't deliver packages. Um, most of them spend most of their time in Washington hobnobbing with politicians. Uh, these are not people who face the reality of the workplace, nor the necessity of, of organizing to make them better and, and expand the unions. The Teamsters is a, is a particularly extreme example of, I think, a bloated bureaucracy. Uh, you know, there are well over, uh, you know, 200 or so local officers that make more than $200,000 a year. Um And I think that that kind of uh, gap between the membership and the leadership is one thing. I think the second is that uh, what's called business unionism in this country, which really is about putting the interests of corporations first and the profitability in the extreme of corporations first, has meant that the institutional structure of collective bargaining, uh, allows a lot of things, like giving up over the giving up the question of workers' control over the pace of their work. So even if you have a union, like at UPS or many of the big manufacturing facilities, like you know the auto industry, say uh, the working conditions and the pace of work are quite terrible and quite dangerous because decades ago union officers gave that gave that away. And the third factor, I think, was that up until very recently, um, you know, the anti-communism that came to dominate the American labor movement after the Second World War meant that those who had built the labor movement from the bottom up in the 1930s, especially, were physically removed and hounded out of almost all the unions, or at least to the fringes of the unions. Um, which meant that there hasn't been. The type of political vision that socialists or radicals of various various stripes can can bring to a labor movement that gives its uh, gives it its vitality gives it its spark. Um, on the other hand, you have the opposite, which is that you have, in most cases, a very dead political life inside of most unions, uh, led by very dreary, small minded. Uh, mostly men, unfortunately, uh, union leadership across the country.
1: Right. And I would just add that I feel like the cases in which you're starting to see social justice unionism crop up, uh, right, which CTU really helped to kickstart in 2012 and has since spread and was a big part of the uh, the teachers' strikes of 2016 and specifically in L.A., um, you know, you are starting to see a more active political life inside the unions, but it absolutely requires, like I think Joe's gone into, you um, a kind of flipping of the power structure and a return to a rank and file model where you know the the leadership is really more beholden to the interests and the priorities of that membership.
2: So I, the mean, next- I would also I would also keep in mind that people should remember that the American labor the trade unions are, are highly undemocratic. I mean the Teamsters is unique for being a union of its size it has 1.4 million members where the members actually vote on the top offices of the union. Uh, Most of the large unions don't do that at all. So unfortunately, you have a kind of reinforcing bureaucracy that has reached its kind of most, you know, catastrophic proportions, say in something like the United Auto Workers, which used to be considered, I think some of this was, you know, overblown PR, but, you know, it was... You know the, the vanguard of the American labor movement, and now it is seen as engaging in the type of tawdry corruption that we used to um, uh, identify with mobbed-up unions like the Teamsters and the Laborers. So one part of what we have to fight for is real rank-and-file democracy. Uh, if we're going to salvage these unions, and if we can't salvage them, then we have to start talking about, you know, building new ones.
1: The next question I've got is from Danny. His question, he says, great discussion. Here's my question. UPS workers need a stronger union leadership, but focusing only on union elections can take away building power on the job. How do you get that balance right?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's, that's an eternal question uh, because the common sense, and there's a lot of truth to this. I mean, it's not irrational. Is that people who you know start to work at a company, whether it's UPS or you know in the auto industry that's unionized or any union workplace, is that you know your first reaction is is you know why is it the union doesn't seem to do anything? So on one hand, the inclination is well, we just need to change the union hall, and um, that's where that's where we begin. Now, you know what, what we've learned from like the the teacher struggles, and you know this is partly applicable to other places, is that some of the most vibrant struggles have been from local unions. So in a place like Chicago or Los Angeles in particular, um, you take over a union which, you know, be fairly large, 30,000 members or so, and it's part of the process of changing the union. But as all of the activists involved would tell you, you know, you took over the union after You know, you spent a decade or more building up rank and file activism, uh, training uh, people to be rank and file activists with a wider uh, political vision, which makes itself felt in the workplaces uh, before it has the strength to then to to take over uh, the local institutions of the union and to then try to then use those to, to uh, take on the employer, whether it be school systems or a major private sector company. Um, you know, and I think that that process uh, can take quite, quite a long time. Um, I think when it comes to, you know, the problem of a taking over a union, right, if you're ill prepared without any base among the rank and file and some history of struggle and political education and you know, and having that vision, is that particularly in the Teamsters, and I'm sure this is true in other unions, I just am not as well versed in it, is that there's lots of stories of people who run and win and collapse uh, because they don't have the politics, the training, or the political base of active supporters to be able to withstand uh, particularly the employer's offensive against them, which inevitably comes when the reformers take over, or the political attacks that can take place on unions, uh, whether they be public sector workers uh, or you know, unions like the Teamsters, which are, is a, an important transportation union. So these are the type of big questions um, that really are the lifeblood of debates within the reform wing, uh, the rank and file power wing of the labor movement, which, wa- which is one of the reasons why uh, the labor notes conference being canceled this year because of the pandemic is really frustrating because many of those issues would have been talked about there. And at the socialism conference, which you know, happens every year in Chicago, which Haymarket is a sponsor of, that had to be canceled. So. I think uh, hopefully next year we can uh, make up for lost time on debating those questions.
1: Right. And I think I might add also that, you know, we got to see a sort of dress rehearsal of how this question plays out in the last contract fight. Um, The vote no efforts, the vote no on the contract, it was a very weak contract that Hoffa was trying to push, you know, the majority of locals didn't want it. The majority of locals voted no on it. They started to try and impose like a two thirds majority ruling on that. But you did start to get to see some of the local drivers sort of figuring out like, you know, my are my efforts best spent right campaigning for the anti hofa slate? Are they best spent Organizing parking lot rallies with my coworkers so that we can get this vote no to pass. Um, you know, how do I split my time? I mean, a lot of people were doing both. It wasn't such an either wow. or thing, right? But um, I think, like Joe said, there's a lot of developing that needs to happen on that front. But what I will say is that certainly you can't have uh, you cannot have a strong electoral approach to getting a, a strong un- like a grassroots union leadership without rebuilding that local power, without giving voice to those workers that were organizing those parking lot rallies. There just is not a way to skip that step. So hopefully that groundwork is happening around the country. I know it is here in uh, Local 804 in New York. Uh, Shout out to the drivers that are doing some amazing organizing work locally. Um, And hopefully Joe continues to write some excellent stories for us on this. Um, But, you know, people should really take a look at this book it, it really does give an excellent history of uh, some of the most important struggles that have happened in the past few decades in one of the largest unionized uh, workplaces in this country. Uh, it has a lot to offer activists, uh, historians, and just anyone who's curious to understand uh, the sector and this workplace more. Um, so I, I want to thank you, Joe, for uh Talking with us today for answering our questions. Um, Before we close, I wanna remind our viewers that if you're in a position to make a donation, no matter how small, please consider giving to Haymarket through Venmo at haymarketbooks.org. If people wanna learn more about the history of UPS, like I said, please buy Joe's book. And he mentioned a couple of other books that you're welcome to check out, like the book that Dan Labotz wrote. There's another book called Teamsters Rebellion. And uh, thank you to Haymarket for hosting this event. And I'm just receiving one more little note here. Okay, I was asked to talk a little bit more about the upsurge movement in the 1970s. I know we're ending, but uh, being that we've only gone an hour, I think we can spend two minutes here to go on into that. So let me just very, very quickly, as the request of Haymarket, talk a little bit about the upsurge movement in the 1970s. Joe, do you do you want to give like two quick points about what it is and uh, what kind of lessons it holds for the logistics workers today?
2: Well, I think there's, there's a couple of things. I mean, you know, the 1970s and today may seem, you know, worlds apart. But I think, you know, one of the things I, I kind of mentioned before is that UPS went through this massive expansion in the 1970s. And so it brought in, you know, tens of thousands, of, hundreds of thousands of workers uh, during the course of a decade. UBS um, always had a very high turnover rate. Right? The, the logistics industry today, it, you know, for part-time workers, it's like 90% across the industry, pick a company, it's it's, in, it's incredible. But bringing in a, a huge work, workforce um, in the 70s meant that a lot of people, there were the self-conscious radicals of the international socialists who went in to reform, you know, they went in to build a rank-and-file movement in the Teamsters. Many of them found out that it was easier, particularly for women, to get hired at UPS and in the tra- the, the freight industry, the traditional freight industry. Um, a lot of Vietnam veterans, a lot of black workers. And they brought in the sensibilities, the spirit of the time, and upsurge became, as you can say, upsurge UPS. Uh, captured that spirit and for a few years it was able to uh, lead local struggles its newspaper uh, called upsurge uh, you know was was fantastically popular among workers across the company across the company and the country um, uh, there are many people who years later would tell me that they just love the upsurge newspaper because it, it kind of exposed to the world the real working conditions at the time but also a, a spirit of defiance and uh, that that the, the worker that workers uh, wanted uh, against uh, UPS at the time uh, so I think that what it tells you for today is that a logistics industry which is again massively expanding um, while a lot of the uh, trucking industry is you know in a recession, going into a depression, companies like UPS and uh, Amazon and others um, have been hiring massive numbers of people. Whether that will continue or not, given the high level of unemployment I will will see and the problems of the economy, is that you can bring in large numbers of people that can really transform what uh, overnight, how people's expectations, their willingness to take chances, uh, they bring in the political ideas uh, of the era, and certainly the fighting spirit that we see among African Americans against against racial terrorism, and thousands and you know millions of working class people who are just tired of the way that they've been treated the last forty years, which we saw expressed partly in the support for Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign. And so, growing quickly, you can also bring in large groups of workers who are being radicalized. And the lesson of of upsurge is that while they were in a union that already existed, you can uh, organize on the shop floor and and organize a fight back. Of course, the difference today is we have to organize a fight back that creates a union on a national level. So that's a bigger challenge, Uh, that takes place uh, for socialists and activists right now. But I think the circumstances have changed that we could have a real discussion of that that even a few years ago might've just seemed fanciful.
1: Awesome, thanks for uh, sneaking that one last question in there, I appreciate it. And for folks, again, who want to know more on the specifics of upsurge or, you know, the Radical Reform Caucus, uh, TDU, Teamsters for Democratic Union, please uh, check out Joe's book. Um, There's also a great chapter in Rebel Rank and File that folks can take a look at. So thanks everyone for joining us. Uh, We really appreciate your support uh, for independent journalism, uh, like Haymarket and Descent Magazine. Uh, Thanks so much to Haymarket Books for organizing this event and to everybody who joins. We hope to see you soon on other live streams.
0: Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, Subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.